Coming up on Leading Edge. I have a different way to consider this and it's actually to replace the idea of inclusion with the notion of pluralism. Within a pluralistic culture, this is where differences are not tolerated, but actually encouraged and celebrated. Those differences then make up the fabric of the culture. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome back to Leading Edge from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason. In this second series, we're learning how to get our boss's job and keep it, how to unleash our inner coach and how to keep innovating during a pandemic. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Shahina Janjua-Jivraj, who's an Associate Professor in Leadership at Henley and its Director of Diversity and Inclusion. She's advised an impressive range of clients on workplace culture and team dynamics, including Cisco, Vodafone, UBS, Heathrow Airport and the UK government. And she describes herself as a disruptor with a purpose. Today, Shahina's purpose is to disrupt and reshape some of our thinking about diversity as we explore the topic of the inclusion trap when being at the table's not enough. Shahina, welcome. Hello, Thomas. It's lovely to be with you today. Great to have you. And first of all, then, Shahina, what do you mean by this phrase when you call yourself a disruptor with a purpose? Well, um, I, I, my alter ego, I sometimes like to call myself a, a dysfunctional academic as well, which um, get, gets a mixed reaction from, from um, everyone, really. But I think, you know, when, you, when you're talking about good thinking, uh, you really do that with the purpose about bringing change and, and improving things. And the reason why I describe myself in that way as an academic as well, it's because you don't want to keep that thinking to yourself. You want to share it with organisations, with people and to make help people to think differently. And so really one of the, the things we need to get a lot more comfortable with is, is changing the way we do things, breaking the way we do things and challenging the mindsets we have. And, and that's where education, different thinking allows us to do that and also helping people to build the confidence to keep changing. So giving people permission, that, that's a really big piece of my disruption with purpose agenda. Not change for change's sake then, but for a good reason. No, it's it, look, it's really hard work to bring about change. So there has to be a very clear reason because fundamentally you're asking people to change their behaviour. Um, you're asking them to really put effort into new ways of thinking and they have to be really clear what the benefit is to them. Now, it, 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 this isn't the first time we've talked about the topic of diversity here on Leading Edge. In our first series, we spoke to your colleague, Claire Collins, who talked about the need to check our unconscious biases, particularly in recruitment. Shahina, you're going to build on that for us today. And despite your job title being Henley's Director of Diversity and Inclusion, I gather you have a bit of an issue with this I word, inclusion, which seems to be widely used across the corporate world. So in general, I don't get hung up on words, but um, within the diversity and inclusion space, there is a lot more movement now towards inclusion. And we really need to understand what that word means and, and actually understand our expectations towards building inclusive cultures. And to get a bit geeky about this, inclusion is derived from a Latin word that means to enclose. So when you think about what we're doing, we're working really hard to bring in diverse talent, the recruitment piece that Claire talked about. And when you have that amazing diverse talent sitting around the room, if you behave with an inclusive culture or develop an inclusive culture, you're actually looking to close down that difference. And so you, you get to the point when you're actually thinking about tolerating difference rather than celebrating it. And that nuance is quite important when we think about what the end goal is in terms of creating diverse, thriving, diverse cultures. So 
if you think about the fact that we are closing down or tolerating difference, we're not creating the, the right conditions for creativity and innovation to thrive. So I have a different way to consider this, and it's actually to replace the idea of inclusion with the notion of pluralism. And this is pluralism, within a pluralistic culture, this is where differences are not tolerated, but actually encouraged and celebrated. Those differences then make up the fabric of the culture. And anybody who works within the diversity and inclusion space will, will recognize this well-known saying. So it goes along like this, diversity is inviting someone to a party. Inclusion is inviting that person to dance with you. But I would add, pluralism is asking that person to teach you their dance and you show them your steps. If you've ever had the experience of learning a dance from another culture, you know how exciting it is. And you also <laughs> adapt it to your style of dancing and you get really excited about that. So that's where the new connections in your brain kick in and generate creative thinking. And that's where we want to get to. The way I think about this, then, we've got inclusion. You're saying you prefer the phrase pluralism. If you're included, it's a bit It's a bit like saying, well, you're now at the table. Well done. Welcome to our club. You're one of us. And actually, what you're saying is diversity shouldn't be about being one of us and that group think. It's more about celebrating each person for their individual characteristics and what they can add rather than just, as you say, joining in, being hemmed in. Yeah, and actually, rather than saying you're one of us, it would be how how are we different now with you being being part of the team? And th this pluralism, how does that work in the corporate context? Like, I think when we look at the notion of uh, pluralist pluralism, it's it's still quite new and evolving. And if we try to typecast pluralistic companies, we actually risk missing the point. It's a bit like asking, what does a school kid look like? There is no typical school child, but what we can think about other cultures and the behaviours that you want pluralistic cultures to engender. And this is, again, about allowing for a diversity of thought, experiences, different sectors, different mindsets, technical expertise coming together. And actually, when you're thinking about the experience within a workplace, not just considering it from the position of senior leadership or the dominant group, but how does the workplace feel? What's the culture within the workplace across the whole organisation, from everybody, from the moment you walk into that organization, whether you're dealing with a security guard to the CEO and everybody in between, and then, of course, customers and the wider stakeholder group. And the really important piece here is that there needs to be a shift within the world of um, diversity and inclusion thinking towards a much more joined up approach. So actually understanding how companies make decisions and then within those decisions, what is used to improve processes, how it innovates. And what we do see, one thing, companies that have started to mature within this area and are moving much more into this pluralistic culture, these companies innovate really well. They pay attention to detail. They challenge groupthink and they welcome oncoming change. Can you think of any companies that are pluralistic in the truest sense? If you think about Pixar, and it's often heralded as a company with a very, very strong culture. And if you look at it through this lens that I've just shared with you, it really comes close to, to nurturing and, and developing this, this pluralistic culture. If you think about the attention and detail that goes into making films, how the teams come together, not only to review the storylines at a macro level, but even working on the scenes on a daily basis, reviewing them, critiquing them, coming up with different ways of creating scenes. You're proactively encouraging different perspectives along the whole process and actually creating a culture where people or individuals are expected to speak and challenge the norm. And we know now this has become part of their DNA. So one thing that I think is a really important takeaway from this point, it's actually the idea that proactively encouraging colleagues, whether they're new staff who are onboarding or 
anybody joining, especially new people coming into teams, creating an obligation to dissent or constructive dissent. So actually setting the expectation that individuals are expected to call out what's going on, how they see things differently, challenge groupthink. But of course, in order to do this, you need a really strong culture of trust. Um, and you need to make it very explicit and remind people that this is um, this is valued within the team. Pixar is quite an interesting one, isn't it? When you look at its backstory, Steve Jobs started working there. I think he managed to sell it or make it part of the Disney group. And he's often talked about is a very innovative person. So it sounds from what you're saying like they've managed to keep that spirit of innovation alive, even as they've become successful on a wider scale and part of a larger organisation. Yeah, and actually they, they, they are successful because of that, because with their first film being such a success the risk was that they would just keep following in the mold of what success looked like but um they were with disney they separated and then they came back into disney's fold and um disney was very clear that they wanted pixar to retain its its culture and actually use that strength to to help reinvigorate disney um and when you find out more about even the history of the films some of the films that we see as huge successes now films like up they were, they were not seen as successful films in the in the inception, but that ongoing incremental change really created the, these films that have blown audiences away. You mentioned process briefly. What would you say is your process when you work with an organisation to introduce and embed some of that change you're looking for? So when I come in, there are three things that I look at within an organisation and, and get people to really think about their starting point. So you've always got to start with the individual what their experience is, those in the room, but also what impact they have with people around them as well. And I build this within a framework, which um, which is sh- I shorten it to the ETC framework. So the experience, what's going on within the workplace, what, what's the experiences of anybody within that particular company, that organisation, but also what's reflected back from their customers and their wider stakeholders, whoever engages with the organisation. The second is then helping people. Once you've gone from that personal point, you can then start getting them to think about targets and what are the measurable outcomes that they have in place, um, what's imposed on them, but also what um, what internal measures have they put in place to measure success. And alongside that, then what budgets and human resources are put in place to achieve this, those plans. So that's when you start to build the infrastructure. And the third piece, which often gets missed out, I think, within this space is actually the communications piece. And if we think about this process of change it is it is transformational change but it's over a very long period and so people need a clear narrative they need that emotional connection to the targets and goals to understand why this matters to us what benefits will it bring how do we do this what does success look like and we've seen this i mean even if you just look at what happened over the summer with the black lives matter protests where companies go out and make public statements Um, in support of protests and social change but if it doesn't correlate with the experiences of their staff you get a huge disconnect and and particularly on social media companies get called out for for the disconnect between what they're presenting in the public space and actually what's going on with with their staff and then that that third bit of your etc experience targets communications framework targets that might maybe engender a bit of fear in in some groups when you think about how to measure diversity uh, and I, I'd like to ask you your take on this really we've seen gender pay gap reporting which has led to some controversies and may well have been pretty constructive actually in creating some change there's now a consultation out on ethnicity 
pay gap reporting. Where are we with all that? So the first thing to say, although it does strike fear, the, the, the notion of targets does strike fear into into people at some level. If if things aren't measured, things don't happen. Progress doesn't happen. So measurement is absolutely critical to this. Um, you mentioned the gender pay gap reporting, and as you know, that, that was suspended this year, which I think will have significant impacts on the results next year and the year after, because this has only been running for a couple of years, and actually we saw a dip in the second year in terms of performance. Um, and of course, COVID will now be used as a reason to explain why gender pay gap issues are as, as challenging as they are. So starting trying to separate, which is going to be very difficult, but trying to separate the impact of the pandemic with the institutional systems that have impacted gender pay gap, the, the gender pay gap over decades anyway. So that that's the piece that we know is going on in the background. And with ethnicity pay gap reporting, this is certainly something that's become much more um, uh, highlighted, particularly this year. So it still needs to go through the legislation process. But we're starting to see some really positive movement in this area. So on the 1st of October, um, the CBI uh, launched its Change the Race Ratio campaign, and a number of companies have signed up for that. Very big names. Aviva, who also has been one of the pioneering companies within gender pay gap reporting, Deloitte, Microsoft. So these are the sorts of companies who have made a conscious commitment to improve progress in their boardroom and uh, executive appointments uh, from uh, individuals from ethnic minority communities. And we know from the 30% club, getting people into senior leadership roles is absolutely critical in terms of um, breaking the glass ceiling. But we also know the pay gap reporting is essential. And Thomas, one stat I wanted to share with you uh, research from March 2020 showed that young people from a minority ethnic background were 47% more likely to be on zero-hour contracts compared to their white counterparts. So we need to do, the, we need to have these measures in place, both top-down in terms of senior leadership recruitment, but also bottom-up in terms of keeping an eye on what's going on with pay gaps amongst the most marginal members of our society and workforce. You know, if you're in business, you're in business because you know everyone has sales targets to reach every quarter. They are they are hit on a weekly basis. So if this is to be taken seriously, it needs the same level of um, focused attention in terms of uh, quantitative values. Indeed, and I suppose that's most people's initial reaction when you talk about targets. It's actually for a company about how they're going to make money. S some might dismiss diversity, particularly when it first came on the scene. I think it's matured a lot since. It's a bit of a box-ticking exercise. What, what impact do you think diversity can have on the performance of companies is, is it good business to have a diverse business financially speaking so we know we we have a huge raft of data from both the corporate and the academic world to talk about um financial performance and and uh, diversity and consistently the research shows that there is a strong correlation between firm performance and financial performance using all sorts of metrics in different sectors different regions different types of companies so strong correlation between financial performance and having diversity in senior leadership. And, you know, the numbers go from, I mean, just broadly, they go from 15% uplift to 25% uplift, whether based on gender or ethnic diversity in senior leadership roles. So I think the business case is set. Um, the challenge is you are, you are looking at longer-term behavioral change. And so the benefits of diversity will be different to each company. You, as I said earlier, if you have, if you if you spend time recruiting the right people, but you're not not actually tapping into that talent, then you're not going to underpin the innovation that's going to help with financial performance. And increasingly, there is research also now starting to talk about the diversity and innovation correlation as well. So 
this is where it gets a bit tricky. And what you can see, there are companies, Aviva is a very good example, GSK is a very good example, where they have very clearly defined a role within, within the organization for diversity and inclusion. They have experienced leads who are working within these functions they have clear budgets allocated they have a they have a plan a strategic plan that's linked into the company's strategy as well and at the other end you'll have um companies that feel that it's a tick box exercise and will ask members of staff or leaders to do this as an extracurricular role and so then you it, it gets it that represent that demonstrates to the organization its level of commitment so if you have somebody who's trying to shoehorn this in on top of a busy sales job or a busy any other role and very limited budget, then it becomes quite difficult for the resources it, that they need in order for, for changes to be made and also for the for, for colleagues to recognise that this is an area of priority. And if it's inclusion or pluralism, who are we trying to bring in here? Who are we trying to reflect? Is it society as a whole? Is it the, the types of people who work for the organisation? Is it the customers, what's the ideal makeup that we're, we're, we're trying to work on here? So there's a simple and a complicated answer to this. Simple answer really is um, if you're saying, well, companies by and large should represent the, the population and the workforce that's within the population. At its most basic level, our, our global population is 50-50, 50% male, 50% female. So that's why the diversity and inclusion agenda has had a very long push within the from a gender perspective because we, we know companies are still struggling to get to that uh, even 30% representation for women in leadership roles. So when you look at it from that perspective, this is just straightforward to, to get the representation of the wider population that makes up customers, that makes up the workforce, it should be 50-50. That's the straightforward answer. Of course, when you start to get into different elements of diversity, whether you're looking at race and ethnicity, whether you're looking at sexual orientation, when you look at age, when you look at disability, all the other protected characteristics that are very important, it starts to become a lot more nuanced. Now, the critical thing is it's difficult to impose some of these determinants on companies and say you must have representation from all of these groups but it's also about having an intelligent conversation about these areas and, and really thinking about who is our customer base who are we representing do we have that customer base properly represented within our company are we then actually channeling that in the way we think about doing things who else is also part of our wider stakeholder group how is that represented so one example i, I was thinking about recently um Mattel have gone through a huge process in terms of really pulling in diversity from a race, from a gender perspective into their organization. And um, for the longest time, and you know, as you know, Mattel, Mattel, one of their big uh, flagship products are Barbie dolls. And these were dolls that had a really tough time because they were seen as out of date. They were seen as quite sexist. They were portraying an image that parents didn't necessarily want their daughters to play with. And over the last few years, Mattel has, has gone through this process of reinvention and having spoken to their COO and actually really digging deep in terms of what they've been doing around the diversity and innovation space, he recognized that they had the talent, but they weren't tapping into the talent in the way they could. Using data, research based on, the, on their marketplace, using data from the company, they have actually undergone a huge transformation with, with their Barbie products. So, you know, you have, you have astronauts, you have recently under COVID, you've had... Um, uh, primary health workers being produced coming out from uh, in, in the form of Barbie dolls, but also a huge amount more research looking at how you challenge um, gender stereotypes and, and the benefits of uh, playing with dolls. And it's even creating dolls that are gender blind so that 
that they provide more flexibility with playing. This has created challenges for them in certain markets, as you can imagine, but they're actually very clear that this is the purpose of what, why they're doing this. And this is how, how they've built a diverse culture, how they've used that to generate innovation. And this, this aspect of diversity is now core to their purpose within Mattel in terms of um, play and education. Thinking about the pandemic for a minute, Chahina, do you think diversity is a bit of a luxury at the moment while the corporate world's in such chaos and companies are going to the wall? Or maybe is it more important now than ever? Well, the pandemic's shown us that everything we thought we knew is is less relevant now. We've had to pivot really quickly, whether it was just companies clo- uh, or offices just, just closing because of the lockdown, but having to move very quickly into, into different ways of working, different ways of operating, getting different products to market. We're still seeing the impact with the ongoing uncertainty around lockdown, what's happening in different areas as well. What we do realise during this period, actually, the companies that are coming out of this space slightly better are the companies who have innovated. And innovation relies on diverse talent and that culture that allows diversity to thrive that's where the innovation comes through. I'm just wondering if we think that companies are going to be under a lot of pressure, particularly those that are not doing all those good things you talk about, uh, if there's a big predicted wave of redundancies coming on down the line, what might be the impact of this on diversity? If companies have to go to their staff and ask those who've been there the longest perhaps to come forward for voluntary redundancies is this likely to see a bit of a sweep out of the old guards do you think companies will be keen to hang on to their fresh new more diverse hires or are they going to give more weight to those with greater experience and miles on the clock there are a couple of trends we are seeing that are slightly concerning and we just need to to be aware of those and, and understand the thinking behind that and the two trends are mothers with younger children seem to be more at risk and more vulnerable of being made redundant the other group that potentially is also at risk are older people who are seen as vulnerable because of the virus um, who are needing to shield and also therefore as you said it might be an opportunity to replace some of that those individuals and, and bring in uh, new talent again I think we're seeing a mixture of things. The companies that recognise the value of of their diverse workforce are being much more nuanced in their decisions and careful about how they're um, who they're who they're choosing to retain and who they're letting go of. Um, and I think other companies perhaps might take a more broad brush approach um, and, and also then will deal with the consequences of what that brings as well. And what then, just finally on this topic, do you think will be the next wave of developments as diversity, inclusion, pluralism goes? We are seeing a much, much greater push now towards evidence-based practice. We're seeing, and with that also data, you know, really showing the accountability and progress that's being made because that's ultimately what we're talking about here. I think also we're going to start to see the function and the role of diversity and inclusion slash pluralism um, being more integrated with other functions within the, the organisation, in particular data. You know, we have a lot of chief data officers who do need to start thinking about how their data, what they're collecting, how they're measuring it through the diversity lens. We've talked so much about innovation today, but even things like strategic planning. And so you start to get beyond the kind of this matters to HR into the other functions within the organization. So I think that's that's what we'll see happening within organizations. I think at an individual level, and we're starting to see this through the pandemic actually, it's about building greater resilience in handling change because diversity is about disruption and it's about bringing change. And actually, as individuals, in order to to handle that, we need to be 
more comfortable in responding to change. We also need to be more comfortable in having those really difficult conversations that get us out of our comfort zone. And I suppose, you know, this is how, this is really what drives a lot of my thinking around this, the work I do. If we think about any of our roles, we are just merely stewards. Our, our job is to work within the organization or build the organization we have, but actually ensure that we make it better for the next generation. For us, the job is to to help that thinking move along quite quickly and, to, and that shift because this next generation are going to come in and, um, and blow us away with what they can do. Right, so we've got more data, we've got changing quotas to targets and speeding things up to have not just a new dance but a shared dance so some great thoughts there Shahina about the future of diversity and then also thinking about what's landed with you over these last few months of a pandemic and a lockdown we're asking all of our guests on this second series of Leading Edge what are the three big takeaways the three things you think you'll keep doing even when one day we're all back to normal and and coronavirus is a thing of the past but what what will you just carry on with regardless so thomas i I suspect we'll never be back to normal i think we might (laughs) we might might try so me being my wearing my disruptive hat i think we'll transition to a new normal or even a next normal if we recognize there'll be more disruption coming our way um my three things so i love networking i love i love meeting people and clearly lockdown happened. And one of the things I couldn't do was go out and have my coffee meetings and, um, and, and go off to events. And actually, I used the probably the first month of the pandemic to transition to online networking. And actually, it's been amazing. I have been able to connect with people all over the world and actually very quickly start generating projects and opportunities to work together. So I've realized I don't have to physically be in the center of London or um, at ten lead in order to to meet people, Zoom is Zoom and virtual networking has become my um, my go to for that, and um, it's worked really well. The radius has changed then of who you can meet. It's no longer just who's within a a quick train ride in central London. Absolutely, absolutely. So that that's been a really big one for me. The other thing was um, I always struggle with reading for pleasure. I do a lot of reading for work, and I've really struggled with having time to read. I was probably reading maybe one book a year for pleasure despite having a pile of books by my bedside. And actually, at the beginning of the year, pre, pre-lockdown, pre I did manage to set up a book club with a friend and nothing happened because we were all too busy. But as soon as lockdown happened, we actually created a virtual book club. And it's been enormous fun because I have read more books in the last six months than I have in years. Um, and very, very different books, which has been amazing. But also, again, talking about that radius of people, I'm, I'm, I'm with a group of women who just bring such amazing perspectives to our conversations. So that's definitely something that will carry on in our new normal. And the final one actually is 6 a.m. walks. We have um, three boys in our house. It's uh, The youngest is 10, so we're not having to deal with um, hugely early mornings. But it's it, it been quite full on to try to, um, to get some time together. And so my husband and I would disappear out at 6 a.m. for walks. And we got to know our area really well, but actually just exploring parks and um and and yeah well just exploring our area was amazing but those 6am walks have just been amazing we've had some of the best conversations we've had in a very long time so now i've actually realized um 
instead of meeting friends for coffee, I'm encouraging them to come out for a walk and a cup of coffee, socially distanced. Of course. What, I, what I'm going to ask you now, some, some simple but yet interesting questions, either or, all I want is an answer. I, I think I might, I, I might know the, the answer to the first one after you've told us about your 6am walks. But here we go, start of a 10 then, early bird or night owl? Ideally early bird, but sometimes a night owl as well. All right, okay. Uh, vacation or staycation? Vacation, definitely now. Screens or paper? Well, that's really hard. Um, paper because I still need to write when I'm thinking, but screens because that's transformed my life. I'm, I'm not giving you clear-cut answers at all, am I? I'm really hedging my bets on all of these. Taxi or bicycle? Oh, see, I'm not very good at cycling. I tried it a few times over lockdown. Can I say walking? We'll allow one uh, rebellious answer, absolutely. Uh, starter or dessert? Oh, that's really hard. Normally when I go to a restaurant, I will check out the dessert menu to determine what else I should eat before then. <laughs> but actually, I usually enjoy starters more because I'm ravenous. So by the time dessert comes, it's sort of guilt with um, with also full stomach. So I would say starter. But, but if you can get away with it both. Oh, absolutely. You That's the point, right? If you're a disruptor, you can break the rules. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Oh, coffee always. That's an easy one. Sliced bread or banana bread? Sliced bread. Not homemade. Taking stock or stockpiling? Oh, stockpiling, definitely. Safe bet or calculated risk? Calculated risk always. Right. Ask permission or beg forgiveness? I'd like to think I beg for forgiveness, but I think sometimes um, I, ask, I, I ask for permission more than I should. Right. Well, I'm going to ask for permission there, Shahina, to end our discussion. It's been a fascinating one about a lot more layers of diversity than perhaps we think about. We just got our head around this great phrase, diversity and inclusion. Now, actually, it's time for us all to learn a new dance and think about pluralism too. So Dr. Shahina Janjua Jivraj from Henley Business School, thanks ever so much for joining us here on Leading Edge. Thank you. Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason and produced and edited by Matt Nielsen. Visit hly.ac slash leadingedge for more.